I am unwilling to give up, that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out, knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control, control, control. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders, We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show, and I am so excited to have my next guest here. We have Daniel Pink, who you might recognize his uh, name. You'll definitely recognize some of his Books, but he is a serial New York Times bestselling author, uh, seven New York Times bestselling books, including his latest called The Power of Regret How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. He has written so many incredible books, as I was just sharing with him. I've been a huge fan of his for quite some time. Uh, one of the best ones that he uh, really, really caught my attention with was A Whole New Mind, but I've also really read all of them, Drive, To Sell as Human, When, all of them. So very, very excited uh, that we have him with us here today. So uh, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward is such a great book for everybody to get their hands on. He really draws on fascinating research from two studies on regret. And I seriously can't wait to hear more of uh, what he found in these findings, um, but definitely you have to get your hands on this book for sure. So, uh, Dan, great to meet you finally in person, and thanks so much for making time. Kara, pleasure being with you on your show. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. So you've written a lot of incredible books. Why did you decide... thanks. Thank you. Uh, you, Why did you decide to write on the topic of regret? Because I had regret. (laughs) (laughs) I mean that was the that was the that that's the short answer to the question. The the longer answer to the question is um, I I I did have I, you know I'm I'm in my fifties and I have regrets and there was a moment when I re, uh, when my elder daughter graduated from college a few years ago and 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 I came back thinking about my own college experience and what I regretted doing and not doing over that experience and. And it really was sticking with me, and I wanted to talk to somebody about it. And so I mentioned this. I, I decided to mention my regrets to a few people, knowing that nobody wanted to talk about regrets, mm-hmm. that this is a taboo topic, that people don't care about it, that you want to avoid even the discussion of it. And when I brought it, my own regrets up with other people, I discovered that everybody wanted to talk about <laughs> regrets. Once I mentioned mine, it sort of unleashed, it gave people permission and unleashed this, this, um, uh, a waterfall of other people's stories and regrets about their own experience. And then as a writer, when you have that kind of reaction from people, you know, you're onto something. And so, as you alluded to in your intro, I looked at the about 60 years of academic research in the subject of regret. I, I did, as you mentioned, I did a, my own, um, basically a public opinion survey, the largest American, the largest public opinion survey of American attitudes about regret ever conducted. And then I also collected 
uh, thousands upon tens, literally now tens of thousands of regrets from people around the world. And that, um, so that multi-year project took me inside of this profoundly misunderstood emotion. So multiple questions uh, that I have for you, but did your daughter, does she want to hear about your regrets? Uh, did she, I, you know, I, I'm curious. Know, actually, I actually, it's an interesting question, Kara. I, um, I don't want to speak for that particular <laughs> daughter. One, one thing that I've noticed for my kids is that I, I don't speak for them or assume, you know, uh, that said, as a general proposition, I find that my kids who are in their early 20s and most kids, when I say kids, I mean progeny, sons and daughters, um, actually want to hear about their parents' regrets. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't want to hear many things from their parents. Okay. You know, they often don't want to hear unsolicited advice. They, um, they often don't want to hear tales of triumph. But I have found, and I think that other parents will verify this, that if you tell your kids, oh, God, I just screwed something up. Let me tell you what happened. You got all, you got all ears. Uh, so tales of triumph and unsolicited advice, usually not that welcome. Uh, stories of your own mistakes and screw-ups, I think you have a very receptive audience in general. Yeah, no, as long as you don't turn it into advice, I guess, is is uh, is the key thing. So you and I are about the same age. I have four kids right around the same uh, age. Oh my, and okay. I found that it's, uh, yeah, they do like to hear how you really screwed it up. But, uh, but as long as you don't uh, say, for example... I didn't go to school outside of the U.S., and therefore you should, <laughs> right? It's, right, right, right. I, I, actually, I, I mean, I think that's actually a pretty important point in general. I mean, it's, it's you know, one of the things that, um, you know, I mean, I think that you see it in part as a, in, 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 as a marketer, uh -huh. sort of in the marketing side of your business. And I see it as a writer and, a, you know, at some level, you know, a persuader is that the most effective forms of persuasion are when, people reach the conclusion that you seek them to reach on their own. Mm -hmm. That is, they're not being compliant with your dictates. Therefore, you know, this very didactic, explicit lesson, but basically just laying out the tale and having them say, wow, like mom um, wishes she had studied outside of the United States. And that was like a couple decades ago. And wow, so maybe I should consider that. You yeah. know? So if you just leave off that, Letting people, I think it's true for, for readers. I think it's true for consumers. I think it's true for audiences is giving them a little credit for reaching their own conclusion mm -hmm. and not necessarily always taking it to the finish line. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's really critical. So, uh, your first regret you remember having. Hmm. I don't know. Um, that's a very good question. Um, I actually don't know. You know, it's, it's an interesting question in that, um, you know, it takes a while before kids, here I mean children, develop the ability to experience regret. So mm -hmm. most of us actually can't do the mental process. Most human beings can't do the mental processing that underlies regret, which is pretty sophisticated. You're traveling in time and you're negating experiences that really happen uh, until they're probably, until about age eight. So, uh, um I'm sure that um, my my regret basically involved doing something stupid that I knew I shouldn't do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's probably probably it. that's probably what it was. You know, it's
How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years, helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. No English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long-term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is the Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, the Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? You can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. 
I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is super well done, I think. It makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of The Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for The Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. It's interesting. I was listening to your interview with Brene Brown and uh, and you were talking about sports. And I remember yeah. very clearly, I was a gymnast and I also was a, I did a lot of uh, track and field. And I remember uh, opting out of different meets and thinking afterwards, oh gosh, I really should have done that one. And, and, uh, and, and so for me, sports was such a critical part of uh, my youth, I guess. It, and so I think that that was really when I saw regret the most, um, where I should have done something. It's super, it's super interesting because, um, as I mentioned, uh, I did this thing called the World Regret Survey, where we've collected regrets from all over the world. We now have a database of over 25,000 regrets from this point, like well over 100 countries. And there are a surprising number of sports-related regrets hmm. and, uh, around the world. And they often sound very much like yours. Um, and they're often about not giving it your all, not taking the risk. Um, yeah, they're basically, they basically fall into two categories, if I'm remembering them right. Uh, one of them is, is, is not working hard enough, like not exerting enough. Um, there's, there's one guy who was in the book who talks about how he didn't devote himself enough to basketball because he was concerned that he wouldn't be as good as his brothers. And by not exercising that devotion, he wasn't as good as his brothers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it did. So the, so the maneuver didn't didn't exactly work for him. And then there are other ones about uh, taking a risk, uh, and, you know, whether it's entering track meets or swim meets or going to the next level. Uh, there's a lot uh, of that. So they usually come down to, and I think what's interesting here is that with all these regrets, the surface domain of life is interesting. But so whether it's in sports or careers or or romance or whatever, but when you go underneath those regrets, you see other things going on. And I think the sports related regrets are essentially about tend to be about uh, effort and conscientiousness mm-hmm. as well as risk-taking. So you went to college at Northwestern and you were a yes. linguistics major. Uh, you're an, wow, okay. You're an incredible storyteller uh, and, nice. and incredible. I felt like this book actually connected a lot of dots between some of your other uh, books that you, you've done. Uh, but you went on to law school and... Um, and but didn't practice law. I mean, that must have been a uh, 
a very bold um, decision on on you know not to do that. Uh, I'm I'm married to a recovering lawyer, so when I told him that you never practiced, he said he's a much smarter guy than than I am. So, uh, but he uh, he went on to do some other things. But then you worked in politics. Um, and uh, became a political speech writer. I'd, I'd love to learn kind of what you learned from that. Uh, you worked for Al Gore. Um, and, uh, but what did you learn about sort of being in politics? Did you, were there any regrets there that you should have gone in a different direction? Interesting question. So, so there, there are multiple questions there. So what did I learn in politics and are there any regrets from having done that? Uh, I'll take the second part first. I don't have a lot of regrets from having worked in politics. I, uh, at the time in my life, and, and again, one of the things that regret teaches us is that we are different people at different points in our life. We are not the same person uh, at age 20 as we are at age, at, uh, at age 50. And we are not going to be the same people at age 80 as we are at age 50. And, and that's that we, there is a, there's a unity. We, we are multiple selves. There's, I don't want to get woo woo on your care, but there, there, there are, there are we have we have molten. There's some interesting. Re- Hal Hirschfield at UCLA has done some very interesting research on this, on the, uh, among others, on this topic. There we are multiple selves, um, and so yeah, there's some unity with who I was at age 20, but I'm a different person than I am at age, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in my in my 50s, and I'll be a different person uh, in my 80s, assuming that I'm fortunate enough to live that long. Now, um, so at the time, so all that, all of which is prelude to saying. Uh, given the person who I was at that time, who was keenly interested in politics and thought that's what I wanted to do with my life, um, I don't have any regrets about making that decision. Now, um, once I got into the belly of the beast, all right, having done this for, you know, done that kind of work for a few years, working on campaigns, kind of in a pretty half-assed way, becoming a speechwriter and then doing reasonably well as a speechwriter, um, I realized as I got closer and closer and closer into this realm that I thought was what I wanted to do with my life, that I did not want to do that with my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I think if there is a lesson here, and here I'm going to be more didactic rather than letting your listeners reach their own conclusions. If there is a lesson there, I think it's, it's that you do have to listen to yourself. That is, there were some, you know, um, there were some, some costs there when I went into working in politics. So I devoted several years to it. I had progressed through the ranks reasonably quickly. I was doing well. And so in those kinds of settings to have to, to realize, like, wait a second, this is not my thing. This is not what I want to do. I think you do have to really push against that a little bit to say, well, but I devoted all this time and I'm doing well. Um, you have to really listen to that voice that's telling you it's not your it, it's not your thing. So given the person who I was at the time, I don't I don't really have many regrets about um, uh, about that. The one regret that I have about having worked in politics is um is that I wish I had spoken up more um, and um, there is a tendency I think it's less about it's, it's partly about politics but it's also partly about just working in organizations that a lot of times we sit on what we really think mm-hmm. that we are essentially picking our shots I don't like and I think that's okay sometimes but I think there are a lot of t- I, I wish I I wish I was more outspoken. I wish I had spoken up more about things I didn't like. And and I did speak up at times, um, but a lot of times I sat on it basically because it's like, okay, whatever. I don't want to have this fight. And I got a family to feed. And um, 
in retrospect, I regret not speaking up more often than I did. I listened to a couple of your other interviews and I, I gathered that. Um, I, I bet it was so interesting too to kind of go through the American Regret Project and the World Regret Survey too and sort of see the comparisons of what people regretted. And it sounded like that was a key uh, piece for many, many people. Yeah, well, there, it was. You're exactly right. I mean, literally, like, I mean, one of the interesting things, again, goes to go back to the, let's, let's go back to me as a linguistics major, which is sort of, if, if you really think about language and if you use the language itself as a unit of analysis, that's one of the things we could do when we collected 25,000 regrets is that we have this, this, this database that has like, like entries for 25,000 regrets from people all over the world. And, and so you can go into the database and you can look at what language people are using. And there is, um, there is a lot of language that, that literally uses the phrase that I just did, speak up, speaking up, spoken up. That ends up being uh, a regret that people have. And, and like your track, uh, your track and field not going into certain meets, the, the underlying regret there, and I think here is where we have some insight into who we are as human beings, that it's a regret. It's what I call under, underneath it all is what I call, it's what I call a boldness regret where you're at a juncture in your life and you can play it safe or you can take the chance. Playing it safe is not speaking up at that meeting. Playing it safe is not going to that more competitive meet. Taking the chance is speaking up, even though you're going to get a lot of people to disagree with you and entering that meet because even though you might not do very well. And what typically happens in greater proportions than I would have realized is that when people don't take the chance, they end up regretting it. That, that people regret playing it safe much more than taking the chance. And, and that, that was the, 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 the degree of difference that really uh, blew my mind. So the four core regrets, what, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, one of them we one of them we cover, which is boldness regrets, where if only I'd taken the chance. And again, we can uh, another one um, is uh, what I call foundation regret. If only I'd done the work. These are regrets that people have about small decisions early in life that accumulate to bad consequences later than later in life. I didn't exercise or eat right for years and years, and now I'm profoundly out of shape or unhealthy. Um, we have a lot about finance. Uh, I, I, I never save money. I always spend too much and save too little, and now I'm broke. So that's foundation regrets, if only I've done the work. Boldness regrets are, if only I've taken the chance. There is one, I mean, you know from, from the book, we have a huge number of people who regret not, American college graduates regret not studying abroad. That's a huge regret among American college graduates. Again, should I stay here in, you know, uh, uh, in, I, I don't know, in uh, yeah, yeah, Ann Arbor or Madison or Columbus, I'm a Big Ten person, you know, should I stay here or should I go to, Naples or Jakarta or Tokyo. Wow, that's really far away. It seems like a risk. I don't think I'm going to do it. I'm going to stay here in my little college town. And then people regret it. So that's boldness regrets. A lot of regrets also. I mean, I found it fascinating in this category about people not asking people out on dates. Hmm. I got hundreds, hundreds around the world of people who regret, oh, I should have asked out Fred or Marlene or whoever, however many years ago. Um, you know, and it still bugs me that I didn't do that. So moral regrets is the third category. Uh, again, it's a juncture. You can do the right thing. You can do the wrong thing. Most of us, when we do the wrong thing, we regret it. So in this category, you had a lot of regrets about bullying, a lot of regrets about um, cheating on spouses and partners. Hmm. And then the final one is um, connection regrets, which are about relationships. 
not only about not only romantic relationships at all, uh, which actually surprised me some. That we have a lot. The regrets on romantic relationships are basically um, marrying or spending time with a partner you knew was wrong. Hmm. Um, those are the big romantic relationships. But in terms of uh, regrets, but in terms of the relationships writ large, what we have is you have these relationships with friends or parents or children or re- whatever that were intact. They come apart. They often drift apart rather than just explode. And then somebody wants to reach out, but they don't. And the drift widens and sometimes it's too late. And so connection regrets are if only I'd reached out. So just to put a button on this here, foundation regrets, if only I'd done the work because we care about stability. Boldness regrets, if only I'd taken the chance because we care about learning and growth and just doing things before we perish. Moral regrets, if only I'd done the right thing because we care about goodness and then connection regrets, if only I'd reached out because we care about love. And and I think what's what I've always found remarkable about this, um, even when the first uh, World Regret Survey results started coming in, sort of filling this database, you know, the first thousand of them, was how similar these regrets were all over the world. That is, when the regret is coming in, if you don't look to see where it's from, it's very hard to predict. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to predict whether it's coming from uh, le- leaving the, the fluidity of the English aside for a moment, it's very hard to predict. It, it, to guess is this coming from Asia? Is it coming from Europe? Is it coming from North America? Within the, within the U.S., you know, is this coming from Wisconsin or is this coming from Texas? Is this coming from Hawaii? Is this coming from New Hampshire? It's difficult to tell. Interesting. And what about age and and gender? Okay, so with age and gender, now uh, for that one. I, uh, I didn't ask people's ages in the World Regret Survey. And because the World Regret Survey is, is purely qualitative, that anybody who wanted to could submit a regret, it isn't a random sample. So I can't really make big demographic claims about that one. However, the other thing that I did, this, this big public opinion survey of the U.S. population, the American Regret Project, uh, that I can make, I, I think it's a very good piece of survey research. I wish it had gotten more attention, but it's a very good piece of survey research. Um, you know, we we surveyed over 4,500 people. Um, I think an excellent set of questions. We had a brilliant, gorgeous sample. So we were were we were surveying Americans of all demographic groups, and I and I and I feel very good about. And, and I we did that so we could make very, exactly these very safe claims about differences in demographics on gender. Not that many. Hmm. I mean, um, more, fewer than I expected. The, the big difference, and I don't think it's that interesting or that it wasn't even that big of a difference, is that men tended to have more career regrets and women tended to have more family regrets. Mm-hmm. I, I okay. would guess. But that. not even but that's not even by but that's not even by a wide margin. Yeah. I mean it wasn't I mean it was it was statistically significant, but it wasn't like this massive difference. However, hmm. And I will answer sort of bearing the lead here, but there is a there is a very important demographic difference that you mentioned, which is age. Here, this is the I, I did this very complicated, you know, expensive survey to try to get demographic differences, and I and the conclusion was there aren't that many, mm-hmm. except there was one that was just so ginormous it also blew me away, and it had to do with age. And here's what it was. In the architecture of regret, there are two kinds of regret. Okay, forget about my categories about 
what people regret. This is just in the broader architecture of regret. You see this in the existing academic literature. You can have a regret of action or you can have a regret of inaction. You can regret what you did. Oh, I bullied a kid when I was in middle school. And even though I'm 45 years old, I still regret it. Or you can have a regret of inaction. Uh, if only I had entered that track meet. If only I had asked out um, uh, Mary to uh, when I was in college. Okay, so things you did, things you didn't do. People in their 20s had roughly equal numbers of regrets of action and inaction. So basically, kids, people who are our kids' age, in their 20s, people had equal numbers of regrets of action and inaction. Hmm. But as people age, the inaction regrets take over. And when you get to really past the 40, into the 40s and beyond, it's not even close. Hmm. It's not even close. It's like three to one regrets of inaction over action. What we regret over the long term is what we didn't do rather than what we did. And I think that's a really, really important finding. Well, I'm, I'm also so curious, too, how that uh, inaction might have affected someone else's life. I mean, you touched on on this in the earlier conversation around what people were sharing with you that they hadn't done. And uh, I, I felt like there was a little bit of, I should have helped. I should have said something in there or I, sh- or, or I should have done something because then if you actually see the fallout of that and how that didn't help in some way. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll give you a, a very, very, very quick, um, doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal, but Gary Soroki handed me in second grade a, uh, a chocolate heart. He ran up to me um, for Valentine's Day and handed me a box of chocolates. I was so wow. horrified, so Strong embarrassed. For a <laughs> so embarrassed. I, you know, said nothing and I ran away. And uh, I didn't take the box of chocolates. He sat there with it. I saw him when I was in college out at a bar and he told me that he could not ask somebody out for many, many years until college because of that instance. Wow. Right? And I've thought about that and my kids all know that story. My husband knows that story. In a million years, did I think that that move Again, I was a child. I mean, there's all these things, but how your how that one little decision actually changed the course of somebody's life. Well, I mean, this is the stuff that that great novels and great cinema are made of. I mean, uh, now on that one, if you'll if I can if you'll indulge me to unpack that a little bit because I find it a, just a beautiful, glorious story. All right. Um, First of all, you were seven. Yeah. So I don't think that, I don't think totally. there's a lot of, this, this is not a regret that you have. Have you, you remembered it, but you didn't say, oh my God, I feel so bad that I didn't take Gary's box of chocolates. Right. Okay, great. Because I don't think that you, I mean, again, people should have whatever regrets they want. I don't think that's that healthy of a regret because you were seven. Right. I mean, you're barely a human being. Um, I think what's interesting is the trauma that, that caused Gary. And it seems like he could have, you know, he could have actually explained that away saying, this has nothing to do with my, <laughs> totally. you know, attractiveness as a partner. This has to do with the fact that the person I approached was seven 
And also, you know, a box of chalks is a little strong for a first move. Yeah, really um, strong. So, so, yeah. So, um, so, so that's it. So what, so, and then whatever, whatever happened to him? Did he end up like having, like finding a oh, partner I'm sure or anything like he, that? He found, he, Gary did just fine, but he, he okay. was, uh, but I think it, it led me to think, and I've thought about this over the years, how, I mean, it's sort of like the, the sliding doors, right? How yes. you are put in charge as a manager, um, as a partner, as a parent, um, you're put in charge of something. You make the best possible decision. Sometimes you have to make a quick decision about things. Um, and I think that there are regrets along the way that are not just about you, but are about, I should not have acted that way. I should not have done that. And especially as a lot of the, a lot of the moral regrets are like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the regrets about the the again, we can we can take a look at the the category of moral regrets and within that category unpack them a little bit. And many of them are about harm to others. Now, what you're talking about here, Kara, is actually a very good quality in a human being that when we make decisions as a parent, as a boss, as a community member, as a human being, that we take into account the consequences of our decisions or indecisions on others. Mm -hmm. And so if we stop and are deliberate, are intentional and just think about that, we'll probably make better decisions and we'll make more uh, compassionate decisions. And what you're pointing out here, which I think is actually just an incredibly interesting kind of paradox is that, you know, sometimes in life we think that everyone's paying attention to us when no one gives a shit about what we're doing. (laughs) Okay. Right. Oh, but really? other times we think what we're doing doesn't matter, but it ends up really? you've like had a you've you've inflicted a narcissistic injury on seven year old Gary. Totally. So you know it's so so it's, so it's really interesting. There's a there and, and you know and so what do you conclude from? What does one conclude from that? I, I think one concludes from that that there is a I think that the the, the former category is is far more prevalent. That that um and this is this is something that I've learned myself as a human being as a, as as an adult earlier in my life I, I actually I think I cared too much about what other people thought of me until I came to the realization of what they thought of me and I, when I discovered what they thought of me which is that they weren't thinking of me mm-hmm. <laughs> they were thinking of themselves so once you realize that it's like this huge burden off of off of your shoulders so I think that's more common that no one is really paying that much attention to you but I do think that there are moments these uh, where what you do and you don't realize it at the time has a profound effect for, on other people. Now, what's interesting about that is that there's a there's a happy side of that tale as well. There are times where I've mentioned to somebody that they said something to me 28 years ago mm-hmm. that really stuck with me, and they have no recollection. Right, and it's a positive right. thing, you know. This is like a positive thing. Oh my god, you know what? You and I were having a conversation once, and you told me X, Y, or Z, and and there's like, oh, that sounds like something I would say, but I don't really remember that. I, I had a professor like that. Uh, I had a professor at, in, in college like that um, who, um, you know, it, it gave me some some feedback on a piece of writing that ended up being at the moment that it hit me as a twenty one year old, uh, just profound and 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 in its own way life changing. And he was just saying it. And when I finally told him that, like literally, like thirty years, twenty five years later. He was like, oh, you know, I don't remember having that. Of course not. He doesn't remember having that conversation. But said, oh, no, I've, I've, I've said that to other people, too. 
I'm like, oh my God, I thought it was just me. But I, you know, but I don't, I don't remember, yeah. I don't remember that conversation, but, but I do say that. And, you know, I, I think he was kind of taken aback that that piece of advice has rippled, rippled through my life even to this day. I love it. So you say that the idea of no regrets doesn't mean living with courage, but instead living without reflection. So yeah. I love this. Can you expand a little bit on that? Well, I mean, you know, we, we have this thought at the core of this set of ideas is a, a, a reassessment of how we reckon with our regrets. And there is this prevailing view that regret is inherently bad for us, that it always brings us down, that it can't lift us up, that we should be positive all the time, never be negative, always look forward and never look back. Uh, and, and, and that's often embodied in this idea of no regrets. So you ask people, do you have any regrets? I don't have any regrets. Every, uh, you know, I don't look backward. I'm always positive. And, it, and I understand where that's coming from, but it's a terrible recipe for living. It's a terrible recipe for living. Um, now, so ignoring our regrets is a bad idea. Um, but what's also a bad idea is going too far the other direction, which is wallowing in our regrets, ruminating in our regrets, steeping in our regrets. That's bad too. Mm -hmm. What we should be doing is confronting our regrets, thinking about our regrets, using them as signal, as information, as data. And when we do that, we have for, you know, we, we have 50 years of research showing that it helps make us better. It improves our performance on a whole range of things from negotiation to strategic thinking to um, um, a better decision making to avoiding cognitive biases to finding more meaning. Uh, to solving problems faster and better. And so what we should be doing is not ignoring our regrets, no regrets, and not wallowing in our regrets. Oh my God, it's everything is terrible, but actually just thinking about our regrets, confronting them, reflecting on them, drawing lessons from them and using those lessons to apply to our future behavior. I love that. So advice to others on digging into their regrets. Let's say that they're those people uh, that you just described that are like, everything's perfect. I don't have any regrets. I mean, you know, how do you, how do you, uh, shape up and, and really start to kind of look at what you can learn from the past, I guess. Well, I mean, I, I think that part of it is just, you know, in those particular circumstances, I think in the conversation, I think it's worth taking a second bite at the apple because, um, you know, uh, so in the, in, the, in the quantitative survey that we did, the American Regret Project, we asked the question about regret without using the word. So we, the question was phrased like this. How often do you look back on your life and wish you had done things differently? So we described regret, but we didn't use the R word. And we had something like 83% of people saying that they do it at least occasionally. Only 1% of people saying they never did it. Hmm. So, uh, so part of it is, is, um, is, the, is the stigmatizing regret and even talking about decisions, like, do you ever wish you had done things differently or done things in a different way? Almost everybody has that, but that's a, that's a regret. Um, so uh, it, we even had people who, in the World Regret Survey, the one with this, this giant database of regrets, we had people who would submit, okay, first of all, they're coming to the World Regret Survey, right? They submit something, they say, I don't have any regrets. I don't believe in regrets. But when I was 15, I bullied a kid and I still feel bad about it. <laughs> You know, like, okay, you know, so, so, um, so, you know, one of the things that, one of the things I think is important to have a conversation about is that regret is one of the most common emotions that human beings have. It is arguably the most common negative emotion that human beings have. We have some research on that in social psychology showing that, that 
you know, in day-to-day life, regret is, is, is one of the most common emotions that human beings experience. Um, uh, what's more is that we also have, again, if we triangulate among these different disciplines, if you go to developmental psychology, we know that in developmental psychology, there are people, and even in neuroscience, we know that there are people who actually don't have regrets. So little kids, as we were talking about before, don't have regrets. Five-year-olds don't have regrets. Why? Because regret is really hard. Regret is, regret is, regret is really hard. Uh, regret is, you know, as I was saying earlier, you have to get into a time machine. You have to go backward in time to, you know, um, if let's say that you had a regret about Gary, right? Mm-hmm. You have to go back in time and negate what really happened. So seven-year-old says, yes, thank you so much, Gary. Happy Valentine's Day to you. I, I gratefully accept these chocolates, all right? So you negate what really happened. Then you get back in your time machine to today, to the present, but the present is now different because Gary is president of the United States because his life has been transformed from that act of kindness that you imparted on him in the imaginary world of the past. It's very complicated. Yeah. Five-year-olds can't experience regret. Uh, people with certain kinds of neurodegenerative diseases don't experience regret. Sociopaths don't experience regret, but everybody else does. So I think one of the well, I think one of the things we need to do is just normalize regret. It is a it is part of what it is to be a human being. Mm-hmm. Everybody has regrets. It is utterly normal. And if we treat it right, it's not only a normal emotion, it's a transformative emotion. Daniel Pink, thank you so much. The book is called The Power of Regret, and we'll have all the info in the show notes. Such a pleasure. I enjoyed it, Kara. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to The Kara Golden Show. If you would, please give us a review and feel free to share this podcast with others who would benefit. And of course, feel free to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of our podcast. Just a reminder that I can be found on all platforms at Kara Golden. And if you want to hear more about my journey, I hope you will have a listen or pick up a copy of my book, Undaunted, which I share my journey, including founding and building Hint. We are here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And thanks everyone for listening. Have a great rest of the week and 2023 and goodbye for now. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Golden. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.